Turn your Bibles, if you would, to Genesis. I know the, uh, the uh, bulletin states this is a part two message, and that is correct. We are finding our way in Genesis, uh, the God of mercy who works righteousness and judgment or justice, part two. But we are not in chapter 18 again. We're in chapter 19 today. So that, that is a typo there in the bulletin. I apologize for that. Chapter 19, um, it is a 38-verse chapter. And um, obviously, my presupposition is that you are reading through the book of Genesis or you have read through the book of Genesis so that you have gotten through this text. If you're like me, reading through this text more than once is, is a little bit difficult. And I mean that from an emotional standpoint. As you read through the text, it's not a comfortable text to read through. It tells the true story, uh, the true and sad story of a, a lot Abraham's nephew, uh, a man who has, has been a, a part of the promise of God, exiting Ur, you know, a former moon worshiper who watched God in mighty ways declare himself and his goodness to Abram, his uncle and his, his uh, aunt Sarai, and saw God's miraculous and monetary blessing in his life, so much so that his own uh, flocks could not mix with Abram's and they needed to separate at some point in time. But Lot's story of prosperity um, is a sad story that ends uh, with a gripping tale of destruction and sin's consequences. And so as we look at the context of the text today, yes, this is a part two message. And the reason why it is, is like I mentioned last week, chapters 18 and 19 are narratives that are placed together to show two contrasting individuals with two contrasting ways of life with two contrasting consequences to their decisions. Now, irony of all ironies, not just the text itself gives us narrative hints of Lot's position and relationship with God, but the New Testament tells us specifically that Lot himself was actually a child of God, a righteous man. Lot is saved. Now, Lot's physically saved in the story. So lest there be any doubt, Abram's prayer and intercession in chapter 18 is indeed answered. God, aren't you indeed a God of justice and righteousness? Would you indeed allow the righteous to suffer with the wicked? And the answer to that question is, yes, God is a God of righteousness and justice. Yes, God will deliver the righteous, and he will conflict or uh, reprove the wicked. He will provide justice for the wicked. So the story de declares for us very clearly, Lot is delivered. But the decisions of Lot's life to date show us a pathology that we must avoid at all costs. So the title of this message is indeed God of Mercy who works righteousness and justice, and it is a part two. But the theme of this text is different than last week. What we find in chapter 19 is that even God's righteous and just acts that include his mercy don't remove sin's consequences. Even God's righteous and just acts that include his mercy will not remove sin's consequences. And as we look at the context of the text, we're going to ask the question, what is the pathology of sin when one shuns God's righteousness and justice 
appealing to his mercy for selfish gain. What is the pathology of sin when one shuns God's righteousness and shuns God's justice and appeals to God's mercy only when it brings selfish gain? And you say, Pastor, why did you ask that question? Well, because that's exactly what we see Lot doing. Lot has showcased a pattern in his life. And in fact, we're going to find today that the pathology of shunning God's righteousness and justice appealing to mercy is revealed through the life of Lot. We're going to see three points from the text today. We're going to see sin's pattern. And actually for this, we're going to need to go back to Genesis 12. We're going to see sin's pattern. The second thing we are going to see is sin's permeation. We'll see that in verses Chapter 19, verse 1 to 29, sin's permeation. To permeate something means to infiltrate it or to saturate it so that it becomes uh, completely overwhelmed with, with that object. Okay, um, So we're going to talk about sin's pattern, sin's permeation, and then finally in verses 30 to 38 of chapter 19, we're going to see sin's permanent consequences. Now the truth today that I hope will ring clearly in our minds as we walk through this difficult text is that you and I must accept God's righteousness. We must trust his uh, justice and we must live in memory of his mercy before sin's consequences bring devastation. So what is the proper response for a believer today? What kind of believer are we? Are we going to be an Abraham and a Sarah who trusts in God's justice, who accepts God's righteousness, who develops the heart of mercy? Or are we going to be a lot who shuns God's righteousness, who rejects God's justice, and thus only appeals to God's mercy our selfish ambitions. I hope and pray that when we see the pathology of sin today, it will encourage us to accept God's righteousness, trust in his justice, and live in memory of his mercy. So last week we were introduced uh, to two contrasting lifestyles, that of Abram and Sarah and Lot's wife and daughters. And all I did was introduce you to chapter 19. I didn't talk in detail about it at all, but we noted that the results of Abraham's corporate uh, worship and Sarah's individual faith will lead us eventually in chapter 21 to Isaac, who is the son of promise. However, the contrasting example that we introduced last week is Lot, whose tarnished faith led his family to destruction and his posterity to hostility and animosity. So remember the theme of Genesis. Sin destroys, God delivers. The theme of Genesis is in a microcosm showcased in this contrasting analysis of the life of Abraham and Sarah and their faith walk versus the life of Lot and his daughters and their rejection of God's righteousness, justice, and self-ambitioned mercy, their self-ambitioned mercy. 
We spent our time last week inspecting the first half of the story, seeing Abraham's intercession for Lot, his family, and everyone in Sodom and Gomorrah. In fact, that was, that was pretty striking, wasn't it? He's, he's, he's concerned about Lot, but in his prayer to God for salvation for his nephew and his nephew's family, he actually appeals to God's righteousness and justice and mercy and says, would you be willing to save even wicked Sodom and Gomorrah? And God says to his intercessor, you've developed my mercy and my compassion. Absolutely, I will spare every wicked person in all of those cities if there's 10 righteous people. And that's the way the story ends. And we pick up in chapter 19 with the rest of the story. And so what we noted last week was that we must accept God's righteousness to develop God's mercy. And that we must trust God's justice to develop God's mercy. And so last week our application was simple, right? Um, God God intends us to develop his character and to be his ambassadors while we're here on earth. I have this written down. God doesn't save us from wrath simply so that we can live a life of ease or pleasure. God intends us to develop his character and to be his ambassadors while we're here on earth. So the takeaway last week, though this was a part one of a part two, was actually very positive. We, God's children, God's people, part of God's church, God's placed us here in this point in time, and he's connected us with history or his story for a real reason. He's put you at your workplace with your employees and your friends, and he's put you in your family group and in your network of business professionals and your network of friends. He's put you there for a reason. He wants you to trust in his righteousness and his justice and develop characters of God's mercy. And that, that's clear in the life of Abraham and Sarah. But what is clear in the life of Lot and his family is the exact opposite. Now, what is difficult for us to understand in the story is that Lot himself is saved. And to put it in, to put it in a, a New Testament ideology, Lot is a Christian, okay? Obviously, Christian came... You know, they were first called Christians and Antioch several thousand years later. But you understand what I mean. Lot himself was a believer by faith in Yahweh and was delivered by faith in Yahweh. But Lot, because he had spent his life shunning God's righteousness, rejecting God's justice, he had not developed God's mercy. And when he appealed to God's mercy, he appealed to it for selfish reasons. And thus what we find is God expects every believer to accept his righteousness and trust his justice to develop his mercy. That's what we found last week. So uh, most believers will aspire to the heights of Abraham and Sarah's faith. Most of us who do that will succeed in developing God's mercy and accepting uh, God's righteousness and trusting in his justice. For the few who are so engrossed in the pleasures and the successes and the fame and the recognition and the entertainment and the self-gratification that this world provides, today's portion of the story stands as a strong warning. As we look at the text and the context of the text this morning, we know that Lot's life stands as a sad reminder of the overall theme of Genesis, that while God delivers, 
sin destroys. Do you see the contrast? Abraham and Sarah's story, chapter 18, sin destroys, but God delivers. Lot and his children, his daughters, God delivers, but sin destroys. It's a perfect paradigm, and it's a perfect dichotomy that splits these two realities. And this warning is incredibly strong. When we begin to unwrap the pathology of perversion that led to Lot's family disaster and the destruction of, of Sodom and Gomorrah, I believe today God will help us to avoid the problems of Lot. See, the word uh, pathology, by the way, is a medical term that in a general sense, as the dictionary defines it, is the study of the causes and effects of disease or injury. Are you tracking? Pathology, as we use it in modern medicine, is the study of a cause and effect of a disease or an injury. Okay? Um, some of you got to see uh, Ethan. He's sitting there in the back by John. I'm embarrassing him today. Oh, he's even waving with his uh, wrapped arm. Uh, apparently, he was uh, exercising this week, and a punching bag got in the way. And so as he was punching bagging, uh, he thought he would give it an uppercut, and it, it, uh, it, it hit back. And so he uh, fractured his wrist, and now he's in a wrist brace. So what is the cause of this wrist fracture? Was it the punching bag? Mm, it was the uppercut. Yeah, so the activity had consequences. And, and if you ask Ethan, he told me, yeah, I probably should have, you know, here I am boxing, I should have actually wrapped up my wrist properly and given it the support that was needed so that when I hit this massive punching bag, my wrist wouldn't go like this, <laughs> that my hand would stay and the force of the punch would be applied appropriately to the punching bag. And so what happened? The pathology of, of this injury is, is there's a cause, an unwrapped wrist hitting a very inanimate, heavy object uh, actually led to a fracture of the bone, okay? So in the same way, we can inspect the life and the journey of Lot, and we can find a cause and an effect. And that's what I mean by pathology. There's a cause and an effect. The cause that we have seen as the big picture of Genesis is sin, and its effect is destruction. But God, the great cause, he has an effect of deliverance. So when we place our faith in God, then the effect becomes deliverance. What we find in Lot's life is, is a sad paradigm. Though he was physically delivered from Sodom, we find his life becomes a life of sowing or reaping the consequences of destruction because of the pathology, the causes of sin's permeation in his life. And that's what we're going to see as we walk through this. So the, the truth that we talked about thus far is this. You and I must accept God's righteousness. I apologize for the typo. We must trust in his justice and we must live in memory of his mercy. Now, the reason why I phrased it live in memory of is I want you to understand what I mean by that. Has God been merciful to you in the past? 
Well, if you're a believer in Jesus today, you know that you don't deserve eternal life. You and I, we all deserve eternal death because we're all sinners. And sin has separated us from God. And since all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, then all of us deserve separation from God. But God intervenes by providing a way to bring us together, to reconcile us, and to restore us to perfect fellowship. He did that through his son, Jesus. And Genesis, since it's the book of beginnings, tells us that this was promised to Adam and Eve, the very first humans, that actually were the first sinners. And God has always kept that promise. And so we must live in memory of his mercy, not just memory of his mercy as we look at the narrative of Genesis and remember the mercy that he showed to Adam and Eve and the mercy that he showed to Enoch and the mercy that he showed to Noah and the mercy that he shows to Abram and Abraham, who becomes Abraham, and Lot. But, but the mercy that he has shown us, we must live in memory of his mercy before sin's consequences bring devastation. You see, friends, if we shun his righteousness, if we fail to trust in his justice, and we don't live in constant memory of his mercy, us not getting what we do deserve, if we fail to live in constant memory of his mercy, we will find ourselves like Lot, permeated by sin following a pathology, a cause and effect that will result in destruction. And that's the sad nature of Lot's life. So let's first look at the pathology of shunning God's righteousness and justice while appealing to his mercy for selfish gain in Lot's life. First of all, through sin's pattern, all right? So for this, I want you to note uh, very quickly as, as we look, let's look at Genesis 12. I didn't write this down. Uh, Genesis 13 was the first text I wrote down, but just flip back a couple of pages. And then I promise we're going to read chapter 19 as um, difficult as that might be. Look at Ge Genesis chapter 12 and verse 4. Okay, we're in Genesis 12 verse 4. Now, you already know what Genesis 12 is. We get introduced to this guy named Abram. In verses 1 to 3, God speaks to him, and he says, get out of your country. Go to a place where I've promised you. And look at what verse 4 says. So Abram departed as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot went with him. So Lot's journey begins when Abram's journey begins. Lot's journey begins when God speaks to Abram. Abram rallies the troops, connects, collects the family, and he says, hey, guess what? God, Yahweh, the creator of the universe, not the moon goddess we've been worshiping, but the one true God who's the God over the moon and the sun and the stars and the universe, that God has spoken to me, and he says that we need to leave. So who's with me? And Lot gets in line. He's like, hey, uh, Uncle Abram, Uncle Abram, I'm, I'm with you. I I'll go. I'm up for the ride. So Lot begins this journey in the corporate journey of the family with Abram as Abram pulls him along. And this is a good thing, isn't it? Lot says yes when he could have said no. Lot could have said, no, I'd like to stay in Ur. I'm kind of digging this whole safe civilization thing. It's kind of nice to have a marketplace close by. It's kind of nice to have entertainment whenever I want it. It's kind of nice to uh, be able to have food provided that I don't have to grow on my own. It's kind of nice to fill in the blank. And so Lot begins his journey in Genesis chapter 12 with Abram, and he begins it well. He, he comes along for the ride. Now look at chapter 13 and verse 12. Just a couple pages over. 
Abram dwelt in the land of Canaan, and Lot dwelt in the cities of the plain and pitched his tent even as far as Sodom. Verse 13, but the men of Sodom were exceedingly wicked and sinful against the Lord. Now, let's pause for a second. You remember what happens in earlier in chapter 13 in this discussion. Uh, there's a, there's a, a problem that's happening. Apparently, Abram and Lot's journey um, has brought them to a, pla- a, a land called Canaan. That is, we will find out later, God calls it a land flowing with milk and honey. It's a land that has a lot of agricultural goodness to it. And what do we f- discover in Abram and Lot's life? They end up reaping the benefit of living in this place. They have cattle, they have sheep, they have goats, they have camels, they have massive flocks of of animals, and God is blessing them so much so that they're having to spread out. And Lot's collection of flocks and herds are overlapping with Abram's, and the people that Lot hired as his shepherders and his cattlemen have uh, starting to have fights and arguments with Abram's, and they're not getting along. So Abram says, look, the whole land is in front of you. Uh, pick, pick one side, and I'll go to the other side. And here's the first time we see sin's pattern in Lot's life. Chapter 12, you know, it starts out good. He's, he's along for the ride. He said, yes, I'll get in the car- caravan. Yes, I'll do the difficult thing. Yes, I'll follow God, even though it seems really hard. But in chapter 13, when presented with the well-watered plains, even up to the gates of Sodom, he's tempted and he falls. You see, just like in the Garden of Eden, where Adam and Eve were tempted by the, the wily serpent, and we understand as we walk through the rest of Scripture that the serpent was a created being that was inhabited by none other than the great deceiver, the dragon, Apollyon, Lucifer, Satan himself. And just like Satan had in his pattern from the very beginning that John, the great beloved apostle, identifies in 1 John for us, Satan has always, in the beginning, and even here, he's always tempted us in three categories. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. He did, he did this, if, you were, if we were to go back to Genesis chapter 2 and 3 and read through that narrative, you would find Satan, through the serpent, appealing to Eve through the lust of the eyes. Is that good to eat? It looks really good. The lust of the flesh, it will taste really good. Uh, and the pride of life. It will help me to be like God, knowing good and evil. How did Satan tempt Jesus in the wilderness? After 40 days of fasting, Jesus is famished. Okay? He comes up to him after 40 days of fasting. He says, hey, um, if you're truly the son of God, if you're truly the anointed one, the Messiah forecast and promised and foretold by the prophets, um, I know you're hungry, so why don't you make that stone into a loaf of bread and, and eat it? I mean, you're God, right? The lust of the eyes. He says, uh, the next one, he, he uh, takes him up, 
well, I can't remember the order, but you, you know the process. He ends up taking him up to the pinnacle of the temple, and he wants him to, to declare himself to the people by God uh, and cast him down. I believe that's the second one. He wants the appeal of worship, right? The lust of the flesh. And then ultimately, he shows him from the top of the mountain all of the kingdoms of earth and says, if you'll worship me, I'll give you these early. I'll give you these without the suffering of death and separation from your father. Which, by the way, just as an aside note, theologically tells us something about the command for mankind to have dominion. And when Adam and Eve said no to God and yes to Satan, they essentially said, here's the crown and the scepter, Satan. You can now have dominion over the earth. Which is why the world system is corrupt at its core. And why there aren't just humans that are in power and authority in this world, that there are principalities and powers and rulers of the darkness of this world and spiritual wickedness in high places because we aren't wrestling against flesh and blood. We're wrestling against the spirit world because there are, is a spiritual empowerment behind physical mankind. Even though Adam and Eve were meant to be fruitful and multiply and have dominion over the earth and of the uh, fowl of the air and the fish of the sea, they essentially bequeathed that to Satan. So Satan tempts Jesus with the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. What happens with Lot? The lust of the eyes. He pitches his tent toward Sodom. By the way, how's he doing uh, economically? Well, he obviously has an enormous amount of wealth so that his flocks and herds are so large they can't intertwine with his uncle Abram. So he's a pretty wealthy man. His obedience to God to leave Ur has not left him destitute. He has been experiencing God's blessing, but instead of accepting God's terms and following by faith like his uncle Abram did, he has decided to follow the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. So look at chapter 14, verse 12. What, this, by the way, is sin's pattern. The attack on, our, on our, our mind and our heart, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Look at chapter 14, verse 12. So they also took Lot, Abram's brother's son, who dwelt in Sodom and his goods, and departed. So now chapter 14 uh, finds Lot where? Chapter 12, um, verse 12, he dwelt in the cities of the plain, pitched his tent even as far as Sodom. In other words, he's still li living in tents. He's moving his tent into these cities and kind of testing them out, you know? Which one has, uh, has the larger IMAX theater, you know? The better, better entertainment, you know? Which one has the better restaurants, right? You know, my, my best preference. Which, where's the best place for me to entertain myself? Even as far as Sodom, he's gotten up to Sodom. But now chapter 14 tells us that... Um, they took Lot and Abram's brother's son who dwelt in Sodom. So chapter 13, he's not quite there. Chapter 14, he's living in Sodom. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life, the pattern of sin, and the appeal of the enemy to, to his depraved nature has so sucked him in that he's gone from uh, 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 Psalm 1 Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly, nor sits in the way of sinners. He went from walking around, pitching his tent to some of the cities, and now he is, he is now standing in the gate 
And we see that in chapter 19, verse 1. So now the two angels come to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life is sin's pattern. And it was even able to appeal to Lot, who we're told in the New Testament is a righteous man whose soul was vexed by their evil deeds. You see, Lot had followed the pattern of sin. He, he, he accepted the covenant of God, the promise of God, the blessing of God. He went with the covenant family of God. He even received uh, economic benefit from being around the covenant family, Abram. But instead of owning the covenant himself, he began to shun God's righteousness. He began to uh, decry God's justice. And he began to uh, only appeal to mercy when it suited his needs. We're going to see that in chapter 19. See, see, Lot's pathology here, the cause and the effect are clear. He was following the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. This is a pattern, friends. This is the way the enemy always appeals to us. And Lot's a, Lot's a for lack of a, a better term, um, he's a Christian, Right? So the point that I'm making here is this. Don't ever think, Christian, that your heart is immune to the appeals of this world. Don't ever think that the pattern that Satan has set before you is not a pattern that you and I can fall prey to. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is Satan's go-to. He hasn't quit. He hasn't stopped. He hasn't come up with a, quote, better plan or a newer, more creative way. He's been using the same thing since Genesis 2, and he still uses it today, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And you know what's, what's scary about that? The book of Jeremiah tells us that it's our heart that is deceitful above all things, desperately wicked. Who can know it? The book of James tells us that it is not God who tempts any man, but it, we are tempted when we are drawn away of our own lusts and enticed. And when we are enticed, sin conceives in our heart, and when sin has conceived, it brings forth death. And James ends that statement by saying, don't be deceived, Christian. He's talking to believers. Don't be deceived. There is a pattern to sin, and it, it even appeals to you and to me and to our deceitful and desperately wicked heart so that James would later say in the text, we don't want to be like a man who looks in the mirror and says, oh, man, I, I probably should you know, get last night's steak out of my teeth. Oh, I should probably comb my bedhead this morning. Oh, I should probably you know, wipe off the, the oil smudge when I changed the oil in the car yesterday. I, I really should probably clean myself up and you know, look a little bit more presentable. Nah, I'll do that later. That's being self-deceived. Looking in a mirror and knowing there's things that need to be changed, but walking away, that's the kind of person that says, no, I don't need God's righteousness. No, I don't need to be just like God. No, I don't need to develop mercy in my life because, hey, once saved, always saved. You know, I got my fire certificate right here. It's my fire insurance. It's my certificate of salvation and baptism. You know, pastor signed it. Sin's pattern in Lot's life 
is the same pattern that we are susceptible to today. That is why the author of Hebrews and one of the major themes of Hebrews is discussing the chosen people of Israel who exited Egypt in God's incredible power and might. Ten plagues assaulting and attacking every deity that Egypt worshipped. And finally, the plague of the firstborn to showcase that salvation only comes through the blood sacrifice of an innocent for the guilty. And that innocent would be shed, that blood would be splattered in a pattern on a door, which, by the way, shapes a perfect cross. And I'm not doing the sign of the crucifix for those former Catholics like myself, okay? But really, you splash it on the top and the sides, and it drips down, and it literally forms a cross, okay? So that when the death angel, because sin, when it is finished, brings forth death, so that when the death angel saw the door, the only way in, he was stopped by the blood of the innocent for the guilty. That was a foreshadowing of Jesus, who would be the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world, who would be not just the Lamb whose blood would be shed, but would be the high priest who would shed the Lamb's blood. So he himself, once for all, would be nailed to a cruel cross the blood from the, the cruel beating on his thorn-crowned brow, the blood dripping from his wrists as, they were, as the nails were piercing him, and through his feet as they were overlapped as he was crucified, forms the perfect cross. So that when the death angel would come and pass over, he would see the blood of the innocent Jesus. So that Jesus would be able to cry out, no, paid in full. It is finished. I paid the price. Sin's penalty is complete. You don't have to follow sin's pattern. You don't have to give in to sin, uh, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life, because I've conquered sin once for all. Now, Lot didn't have the, the blessing of the full fulfillment of Scripture like you and I have. He didn't even have the, the Torah, the first five books he had oral instruction. He had Abram's uh, faith and Abram's word that Yahweh the Lord had spoken to him and called him out and given him a covenant promise. And by chapter 19, no doubt in my mind, he knew that God had already visited Abram the, just a few weeks before and said, by the way, it's now time. A year from now, you're going to have the son of promise. Lot knew but the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life had so permeated his life that he was on a path to destruction. Now we're going to see this pathology of shunning God's righteousness and his justice while appealing to his mercy for selfish gain in Lot's life, secondly, through sin's permeation. So not only is there a pattern in Lot's life, yes, he obeys, yes, he follows, yes, he gets blessing, but when given the opportunity, he pitches his tent towards Sodom and even hangs out in some of the cities, kind of figuring out where are the best places to crash, which city has the best nightclubs, which one has the best action, which one will give me the best return on the investment. By the time we get to chapter 19, he's cashed in his herds and his flocks. He's not a shepherd anymore. 
All of that money that he made, all of that stuff, he's now invested it in a property in Sodom, and he is sitting in the gates. And by the way, the gates in the ancient city were the place of commerce. It's like, uh, it's the place where government happened. It'd be like the Senate or, or downtown on Jefferson Street in Phoenix. This was a place of, of business, everyday business. And so what we see is sin's permeation. Now, this is where uh, I, I don't want to lose you, so let's go ahead and read chapter 19. And, and bear with me. I, I know we're going to read the whole thing, and I know it seems pretty excessive, but I want this, the text to be the most important thing we hear today. So let's read the whole chapter. I won't interrupt it, okay? Then we're going to talk through verses 1 to 29. Now, the two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them, and he bowed himself with his face toward the ground, and he said, Hear now, my lords, please turn into your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise early and go on your way. And they said, No, we'll spend the night in the open square. But he insisted strongly so that they turned into him and entered his house. Then he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. Now before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both old and young, all the people from every quarter surrounded the house. And they called to Lot and they said to him, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them carnally. So Lot went out to them through the doorway, shut the door behind him and said, please, my brethren, do not do so wickedly. See now. I have two daughters who have not known a man. Please let me bring them out to you, and you may do to them as you wish. Only do nothing to these men, since this is the reason they have come under the shadow of my roof. And they said, stand back. Then they said, this one came in to, to stay here, and he keeps acting as a judge. Now we'll deal worse with you than with them. So they pressed hard against the man Lot and came near to break down the door. But the men reached out their hands and pulled Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck the men who were at the doorway of the house with blindness, both small and great, so that they became weary trying to find the door. Then the men said to Lot, have you anyone here else here? A son-in-law, your sons, your daughters, and whomever you have in the city, take them out of this place, for we will destroy this place because the outcry against them has grown great before the face of the Lord, and the Lord has set, uh, sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law who had married his daughters and said, get up, get out of this place, for the Lord will destroy this city. But to his sons-in-law, he seemed to be joking. When the morning dawned, the angels urged Lot to hurry, saying, Arise, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be consumed in the punishment of the city. And while he lingered, the men took hold on his hand and his wife's hand and the two hands of his two daughters and the Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him out and set him outside the city. So it came to pass when they brought them outside that they said, Escape for your life. Do not look behind you, nor stay anywhere in the plain. Escape to the mountains, lest you be destroyed. Then Lot said to them, 
Oh, please, my lords. Indeed, now your servant has found favor in your sight. You've increased your mercy, which you've shown me by saving my life. Uh, but, but I can't escape to the mountains, lest some evil overtake me and, and I die. See now, this city is near enough to flee to, and it's a little one. Please, just let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my soul shall live. And he said to him, See, I have favored you concerning this thing also, in that I will not overthrow, the, overthrow this city for which you have spoken. Hurry, escape there, for I cannot do anything until you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the city was called Zoar. The sun had risen upon the earth when Lot entered Zoar. Then the Lord rained down brimstone and fire on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of the heavens. So he overthrew those cities, all the plains and all the inhabitants of the city and what grew on the ground. But his wife looked back behind him and she became a pillar of salt. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. Then he looked toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the plain and he saw, and behold, the smoke of the land, which went up like the smoke of a furnace. And it came to pass, when God destroyed the cities of the plain, that God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overflow. And when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had dwelt. I'm going to pause the reading there for a moment, and we're going to discuss this permeation of sin. You see, Lot's journey began with Abram and Sarai, but it ended in a cave, often used as a grave. Lot asked to spare the city of Zoar, which by the way, it means little. It's just a little city. But he ended away from the city in terror and fear. You see, sin's permeation in Lot's life, sin's addiction, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life had so captured and enraptured Lot that he began his life and his lifestyle began to reflect the ideology of the world around him. That look to the well-watered plain became a path that permeated his life. Lot, we find here in the story very clearly, the angels of the Lord go to uh, rescue him uh, it's, a, it's an absolutely atrocious story. We, I mentioned last time in chapter 18 that the sin that's mentioned here is not just sexual, but, but the text actually shows that it was manifested in a lustful desire for sexual relations, even to the point of physical rape. That's, that's actually what the text is saying. These men... And, and, and it's a comprehensive, not just a couple, the every quarter, the entire city. We must even assume that Lot's sons-in-law were part of this crowd because he goes outside and he eventually says, hey, um, the angels are going to destroy the city. You need to get out of here. Every single one of them were bent on the intention of self-gratification, even to the point of physical harm to the visitors that Lot was keeping in his home. Now, I don't know about you, but in this, you know, when I, when I get to this spot, I, I give kudos to Lot. 
He, he takes them out of the square. He knows this is an atrocious place. He puts them in a place of safety. He is extending hospitality. This is a custom that, that he, is, uh, he has brought to Sodom, and it's a good custom. But this is where sin's pattern has permeated his thinking. And this is where, quite frankly, uh, I, I have to say I get a little repulsed with righteous Lot. When confronted with the truth that these men aren't going to stop, their self-gratification has driven them to the point that they are going to break down his door so that they can do violence and harm to these men that are visiting. Lot doesn't say, do your worst so that God will do his best. Lot says, you know what? Uh, why don't I give you my virgin daughters? Why don't you have your way with them tonight? Now, I don't know about you, but just, just me voicing those words makes me extremely angry that Lot would even consider such a violent and repulsive act. But sin has so permeated his mind that he is willing to give his precious children to the crowd that will do nothing but violence. Friends, sin will take you farther than you want to go, and it will leave you longer than you want to stay, and it will have consequences far greater than you want to bear. I don't think when, when Lot left Ur of the Chaldees that he would have ever imagined 30 years later, he'd be sitting in a city that was bent on self-gratifying rape and violence of every male and female that entered into that city. And unless they got their way, they would be willing to break down the door to do so. Lot's sin had permeated his mind. Friends, the pattern of sin when we give in to the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, what happens is we begin to stop thinking God's thoughts after him. We begin to accept the philosophy of the world. We begin to hold up as moral standards small parts of truth that we know to be good and right. Right? Hey, um, you have a law against harming visitors. I'm being hospitable here. Stay out of my home. Uh, leave these visitors alone because they're, they're my guests. But you can have my virgin daughters and you can do with them as you like. You see, sin had so permeated his thinking, he didn't know where the truth be, uh, continued and, and error ended. He, he didn't know where the overlap was. He didn't know that God's righteousness meant he needed to stand for everybody in his household. But instead, he was inviting sin and destruction to come. It had so permeated his mind and his life. Listen, there's a parental principle here, parents. And I understand we're not under law, we're under grace. By the way, Lot and Abraham weren't under law either. There was no Mosaic law for them. They were under grace and mercy as well. But there's a parental truth here, friends. In the New Testament and the New Covenant, which is in Jesus' blood, we have liberty from law. We have freedom to enjoy all things richly uh, as God has provided. 
right? We have freedom to choose, you know, what we'll eat and what we'll drink. We don't, we don't have mosaic principles. You know, I grew up in eastern North Carolina, and let me tell you, the number one uh, pr pr production product they produce there is pork. And if you've never had eastern North Carolina pig the way it was meant to be, you are missing out on some of the greatest food on planet Earth. If you were Jewish, you wouldn't be able to eat pig. We can. We have liberty. And I, and I think the point, though, that I'm making is, parent, when you take the liberty that you do have without the, with the unbridled restraint of self-gratification, when you let sin's pathology, when you let sin's pattern, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life drive all your decision-making, how do you govern your budget? How do you manage your money? How do you govern your time? Is it ever at all held in constraint by the word of God or the principles of God's word? If it's only just satisfying myself, self-gratification, whatever I see, I want, whatever uh, makes me proud or gives me a prestige, I'm going to buy, I'm going to do, I'm going to have. If that is the pattern in your life, you are setting a permeated truth in place that will have ramifications for your kids and your grandkids and everybody in the generation around you. This is what happened to Lot. Lot himself was delivered. Lot himself was a child of promise. Lot himself, we're told in the New Testament, was righteous. But look at verses 30 and following. And this is going to talk, finally, we're going to see sin's permanent consequences. And then I'll be done. This is it. Last point. This is very uncomfortable. So bear with me. Then Lot went up to Zoar, went up out of Zoar. So what, wait, wait, wait a second. Let's just pause for a second. Didn't he just beg for God's mercy a second time? Didn't he just acknowledge, I, I've received your mercy, um, but could I, could I maybe stay in this city? Why was he appealing to mercy? Because he was appealing to mercy for self-gratification. Because the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life had so permeated his thinking, he could not possibly imagine not living in a place like Sodom. He could not possibly imagine not having the entertainment that he had at his fingertips, not having the, the, the recognition of standing in the gates, of being a bigwig in a place where money and uh, riotous living flowed freely. And so he decides, can't I stay in Zoar? But what do we find here in verse 30? He leaves Zoar. Now, we're not told why, um, other than, you know, he's afraid. So perhaps his fear is the people of Zoar recognize he was an outsider. What did the Sodomites tell him? This guy's an outsider, and now he wants to be our judge? We're going we're gonna to break his door down. We're going to do even worse to him than we're going to do to the two men that are in his household. Maybe he experienced the same kind of rejection. By the way, did you know as a Christian, when you try to be a chameleon like the world, not only are you hated for being a Christian, but you're hated for being a chameleon, pretending to be one too. Here he thought, if I just, just get to Zoar, I'll fit in. He doesn't fit into Zoar either. He goes out of Zoar and he dwells in the mountains and his two daughters were with him. For he was afraid to dwell in Zoar. He and his two daughters dwelt in a cave. Like I said, caves were generally places of the dead. So in, 
in a lot of ways, Lot's life is over. This is, this is symbolic here. We don't really hear about Lot anymore in the rest of Genesis, except as a byword and in passing. This is essentially Lot's death. He goes to a cave. That's where you put dead men's bones. And Lot essentially dies. He doesn't, but that's symbolic. All right, keep going. Now, the firstborn says to the younger, our father is old, and there's no man on the earth to come into us as is the custom of the earth. Let us make our father drink wine, and, he, and we will lie with him, that we may preserve the lineage of our father. So they made their father drink wine that night, and the firstborn went in and lay with her father. And he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. It happened on the next day that the firstborn said to the younger, Indeed, I lay with my father last night. Let us make him drink wine tonight also, and you go in and lie with him, that we may preserve the lineage of our father. Then they made their father drink wine that night also, and the younger arose and lay with him, and he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Thus, both the daughters of Lot were with child by their father. The firstborn bore a son called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. And the younger, she also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the people of Ammon, or the Ammonites to this day. End of story. Now, again, I don't know about you, but I find this story extremely disturbing. I'm sure you do as well. But the path of sin, the pathology of sin, the, the cause and effect is extreme and it's permanent. Friends, when we allow sin's pattern to permeate our thinking, to so infiltrate our minds so that we are governed by the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life, we will suffer permanent consequences. Amen. And I don't know, I, I'm, I'm sure with the fact that Lot's not ever mentioned again, I'm sure that every single day, and by the way, this is, I want you to know that these children are precious. Moab and Ammon, these are, these are uh, Ben-Ami, these are precious children. There, there's nothing wrong with these children. I want you to know this is not the child's fault. Are you, are you tracking with me? These children uh, shouldn't be thought of as reprehensible in some way, shape, or form. But I guarantee you that every single day that Lot held his grandsons and sons, he didn't think about the way sin permeated his life. It so permeated his life that his daughters didn't know what was right or what was wrong. His daughters didn't have any clue as to what the Lord Yahweh, Jehovah, the father of Abraham, God of the earth, who they could have gone back to for help and aid. They had no idea what God would have wanted, but instead, they just go the way of the world. You see, friends, parents, what we do in our homes, our children will do in excess. That's why though we have liberty, we have got to govern our liberty in Christ under the laws of Christ, the law of love for our brothers and sisters. Though I might have liberty to choose an entertainment uh, path or a style or a, 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 a series on Netflix or Hulu or a movie that I want to watch, 
or a beverage I'd like to drink or a place I'd like to dine. I might have liberty to do those things and freedom in Christ. And I might even have the spiritual discernment to skip the scenes that aren't, aren't appropriate for me to watch. But I wonder, what am I teaching my child to do? What is my child observing? Does my child have the same spiritual discernment and the life uh, experiences at this point? You see, sin's path becomes a permeation with permanent consequences. Amen. And, and this, I want, you, I want you to know my heart in this. I am, a, I am a sinner. I am a fallen sinner who is a head of a household. There is not a single time in my life where I've ever been perfect. And there have been plenty of times, and you can ask my, my, my kids and my wife, and as much as they'll be loyal and loving to me, and as much as they'll say I'm awesome and I'm amazing, you've probably heard that a thousand times from them, they will also be honest with you. There have been plenty of times where I've had to say, look, I, will you please forgive me? I utterly failed you in this area. This was bad decision-making. This was bad leadership. This was a bad choice. I should not have allowed this in my life. Parents, God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Now, I'm not throwing this all on you as a parent. This application is not just for parents today. You see, Lot's daughters only knew the twisted morality they were taught and observed in Sodom. And though their own mom and dad's, uh, through their own mom and dad's decision making, there's so much more I could say. For example, you know, we look back at Sodom and Gomorrah and how, how did they grow up? How were they reared? I personally believe that Lot had older daughters that were married. That's why he went out to talk to his sons-in-law that had married his daughters. And, and imagine the influence, Lot's pattern of sin that had so permeated his thinking when he opened his mouth to say, warning, 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 get my daughters, hey, sons-in-law, come out of here, get whatever you can and escape for your life. They're like, what, what's wrong with you, old man? Are you crazy? Have you been watching, have you been down at the theater watching the latest apocalyptic uh, thriller? Yeah, I think, I think you've had a little bit too much to drink tonight, Lot. You're a nut, man. What's going on with you? And his sons didn't even, didn't even believe him. He had no credibility to exhort them to leave, to flee for their lives. And his daughters who came along for the ride, when it comes to deciding, hey, what's the right thing we should do in our lives? They had, they had no foundation of truth. Lot had taught them nothing. They decided what was right in their own eyes. And by the way, the Moabites and the Ammonites become a thorn in the flesh for the sons of Abraham later on in, in Israelite history. Because sin has permanent consequences. And as we already know, Abraham, he's not immune, right? We, we, we got Abram's problem with Hagar and Ishmael, and that's still going on today, right? Arabs and Israel, they don't get along, and there's a reason, because they're Ishmael versus Isaac. And so what we find then is this. This, this uh, sin of mom and dad, this permanent consequence these two girls chose this led to the ghastly decision to procreate through incest with all of its ramifications. Although your life choices may not lead to the extreme consequences we see in Lot's story, you and I must know for a certainty our sin will destroy us and it will leave a wake of destruction around us. Father, mother, 
grandparent, teenager, the decisions that you make today will affect your future and your posterity tomorrow. Don't let the pattern of sin permeate your mind so much that you suffer the permanent consequences. This world is so hopped up on fame. Uh, I just watched, a, I watched a, a documentary on YouTube. It was fascinating, absolutely fascinating. Some of, the, some of the pop stars that became the first YouTube stars, Justin Bieber, is, is a good example. He was discovered by a, by a guy. Um, and as a teenager, he was social media blitzed, actually uh, in, in your face style. Um, Justin Bieber met outside of some of the uh, going studios, audio studio recorders, um, some of the most popular and prominent ones. And uh, he had a, they had a sort of a flash, social media flash, where a bunch of his fans from YouTube showed up on site and they literally, the, the producers of this giant music label were looking outside of their, you know, 20 story windows down in this massive mob flooding this kid who was getting autographs. They had to listen and he became a, a YouTube phenomenon. And then of course, we know Justin Bieber, he became a, a pop star, fame through YouTube. Um, our, our youth are being taught that fame and money and success and entertainment is all there is. That our life only matters if we have so many Insta followers. The, the more followers we have, the more influence we have, the more influence we have, the more important we are. Do you see how that is the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life? What was Jesus' philosophy in Philippians chapter 2? Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who thought not of his own things, but thought of the needs of others. He humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Friends, our fame, our wealth, our satisfaction, our entertainment, uh, the things that make us happy pale in comparison to the eternal weight of glory that is coming for us. Who will be the greatest in the kingdom? Jesus said. He who is servant of all. The Gentiles lord it over, but it shall not be among you. The Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for the many. Dad, granddad, mom, grandma, are you serving your kids? Are you serving your grandkids? Or have you allowed the path of sin to permeate your minds? Are you also seeking Sodom's pleasures? So much so that, you know, you have allowed that to permeate your home and your heart. Look, I'm not, I'm not preaching a message of, you know, go, you know, burn all your VHS tapes, you know, because some of you don't even know what a VHS is. Right? Go smash your CDs. What? We gave up CDs a long time ago. We just have digital cloud now. Yeah, I got it. I get it. Uh, that's not what I'm saying. That's, that's not the point of this. That's the way this has been applied in, you know, 1970, 80, 90 in certain church circle, circles and circumstances. That's not the point. That's all external. 
The point of this text is not the external, it's the internal. It's the stuff that I can't see, but God does see. What are you doing about that, Dad? What are you doing about that, teenager? What are you doing about that, child of God? You see, sin's permanent consequences will be far worse than you and I can possibly imagine. Today, we've explored the question, what is the pathology of a sin when one shuns God's righteousness and justice, appealing to his mercy for selfish gain? What we discovered is that the pathology of, of shunning God's righteousness and judgment, justice while appealing to his mercy for selfish gain, brings a pattern, a permeation, and permanent consequences. But you and I must accept God's righteousness we must trust in his justice. Again, sorry for the typo. And we must live in memory of his mercy before sin's consequences bring devastation. Friend, let's be Abraham and Sarah. Let's not be Lot and his daughters. Let's follow the pattern of trusting God, looking to God's word, and following God's way and not, not allowing the pattern and permeation and permanence of sin destroy our family and our future. Let's pray.